baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. The move over law has been expanded. And we talked about this yesterday, and I think it's a great idea. That means if somebody is is pulled over on, on the um, side, on the shoulder of the road, that means if you're driving on the highway or whatever, that you are supposed to, when you can, uh, move over to the, you know, a left uh, lane, to, to a left lane. Uh, it's called the Ted Foss Move Over Law, and it has been expanded to include any vehicle that is stopped with hazard lights activated. And I want to talk more about that because there are a lot of folks that are on the side of the road with hazard lights activated. So joining us now is Sergeant Troy Christensen from the Minnesota State Patrol on the John Schuster Coldwell Banker Hotline uh, to discuss and maybe get some answers to our questions. Sergeant, Sergeant Christensen, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, good morning. Good morning. Um, how is, first of all, how is this enforced? Like if you don't move over and you blow past somebody with hazard lights on, how does the state patrol know that you did this? And um, and do you get a ticket in the mail? How is this enforced? So we'll enforce this. We're going to actually have to see the violation or have somebody report it. And then we'll be able to enforce it by following up with them with a license plate and then also just interviewing the person uh, that violated this law. Okay, so give us a little bit of background. Why is this law in place and how does it keep us or people on the side of the road safer? Well, it's important because we're seeing an increase in pedestrians being struck outside their vehicles. And we especially Mm -hmm. see that this time of the year with car versus deer crashes. Uh, People always Mm -hmm. want to check the damage of their vehicles and they want to get out and see if their vehicle is drivable. But sometimes they'll just stop in the lane of traffic or too close to the fog line and they're not paying attention to traffic around them. So it's important that if you do strike a deer or your vehicle becomes disabled, to get it off on the shoulder as much as possible or in a safe location and then stay in your vehicle, seat belted, call 911 and have your hazards on and then we'll come out and assist and give you any type of help you'll need. If it's a tow truck or uh, any type of injuries, then we'll be able to assist in that as well. So you recommend that, like, if somebody hits an animal or blows a tire or something like that, that when they pull over and put their hazard lights on, they shouldn't get out of the vehicle? They should call the state patrol? Yep, absolutely. Stay in your vehicle. Okay. Move your vehicle off onto the shoulder as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And if a ramp is close to you or a field drive, just pull off into that so you can get off on the roadway as much as possible. And it's also important for other motorists to eliminate distractions. And as soon as they start to see flashing Mm. lights or a vehicle on the shoulder to start to reduce speeds, especially going into the winter months uh, when the roads are going to become slippery, you want to reduce the speeds before you get to that vehicle so you don't lose control and strike them. Sergeant, hey, Dave, jumping in here. I the, the picture you just painted about, okay, I'm in maybe outside of the metro area. Somebody hits a deer. They pull off to the side. Of course, I should move over a lane and give them some space in case they need to get out of their car or whatever to avoid any incident. 
But if I'm on, say, 169 driving on my way home, the other day I counted three cars in my, in my you know, six-mile drive Ooh. on 169 in heavy traffic that were stopped on the side of the road. And if I were to attempt to move over for every one of those three cars, I would think that would cause, like, a lot of traffic delays and other issues with a whole stream of cars merging over into, you know, basically causing that to be a one-lane road for that stretch. How do you think that will impact the, you know, metro area if there's lots of cars on the side of the road? So on multiple-lane roadways, it's going to become difficult, especially during rush hours. If you're not able to move over to the lane farthest away from the sold vehicle, then you're required to reduce speeds. And we just want to make mm-hmm. sure people reduce speeds. So if that person does get out, they're going to have time to react, or you will have time to react as well. But during rush hour, and there's a stalled vehicle on the right shoulder, and there's multiple lanes, and you're unable to move over for it, you're not required to do that by law. Okay, and then you won't necessarily be cited for it. If somebody says, oh, I saw this car, they didn't move over, but there was heavy traffic and they couldn't move over, that's not going to be a citable violation. Correct. We want to keep traffic flowing, but it's important that we want to keep everybody safe as well. And so it's important for people just to reduce the speed approaching a stalled vehicle on the right shoulder. No, my understanding is this only has to do with vehicles who have flashers on. So say I, you know, ran out of gas for some reason and I Mm -hmm. left my vehicle to go get gas. Like, should I leave those flashers on causing everyone to move over? Or because I'm not in the vehicle, should I turn the flashers off to allow those people to not have to move over? No, we want to make sure the flashers are on just so it's a hazard on the shoulder and we want people to be aware of it. And so we want to be able to make people reduce their speeds and pay attention to that vehicle on the shoulder. We're speaking with Sergeant Troy Christensen from the Minnesota State Patrol about the expansion of the move over law. So, Sergeant Christensen, you know, David just said that he sees a lot within a, a, David, and correct me if I'm wrong, within a six-mile stretch of 169, you saw three vehicles? that's correct, yeah. Okay, that's correct. Um, Over on the side of the road with their flashers on. That seems like a lot. Uh, Is is that, I mean, an accurate description? Are there a lot more vehicles on the side of the road? Are more people, you know, checking their maps? Are they more easily, you know, pulling over? Do you see more people pulling on the side of the road? Well, we want people not to pull over on the shoulders. We want them to exit off the freeway if they are lost and redo their navigation and then get on their way. Anytime a vehicle's on the shoulder, it's potentially a hazard for other vehicles. Yeah. So if there are stalled vehicles in the emergency or um, equipment breakdown, it's important that they move over as far as possible. But we always do have vehicles stalled or some type of mechanical issues or flat tires. So we do see quite a bit of that. And going into the winter months, we're going to see more crashes and vehicles off the road so it's important that you just reduce speeds and eliminate distractions while you're driving and one of the takeaways i heard you say is that no matter what happens you know even if you get a flat or something you should not get out you should call the state patrol so like there's a lot of people they're like oh i just have a flat tire i i know how to change it i have a spare just to be clear you're telling us you know don't do that we shouldn't handle it ourselves we should wait for you guys what about calling yes. AAA? Should we call AAA? You can call AAA or we can call them for you or a tow company. And they'll, the tow companies will have the flashing lights to help people reduce their speeds. And then they'll be able to help either get the vehicle, change the tire, or be able to put it on a flatbed and get it out of there to a safe location and get it going and you can be on your way. Sergeant Christensen, is there anything that I didn't ask you, anything we need to know more about the Ted Foss move over law, the expansion of the law? 
Well, the expansion kind of just covers the stalled and disabled vehicles, but we've had this mm-hmm. law since 2002, and it was named to honor State Trooper uh, Ted Foss that was mm-hmm. killed on I-90 in Winona. So it's a very important law, not only for disabled vehicles, but for law enforcement, construction vehicles, tow trucks. And going in the winter months, we're going to have a lot more snow trucks, snow plows on the roadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, Sergeant, we so appreciate the time, and thank you for keeping us safe out there. You guys are doing a great job. Yeah. Thank you. We appreciate it. Uh, the Department of Public Safety, by the way, and, and David, to that point, I mean, three vehicles in a six-mile stretch, that's a lot of vehicles that David was saying. So I can see where he's concerned about uh, slowing down traffic, especially if you're in rush hour. I mean, we know that in traffic, you can also cause more accidents. So it, it, there is a legitimate you know, concern here about it being even more dangerous. But I tell you, the Department of Public Safety said 550 vehicles responding to roadside incidents were hit from 2018 to 2022. So this is like AAA vehicles, maybe even uh, police vehicles or state trooper vehicles. I mean, that's a lot, folks. This is this is a major concern. And I think I I agree that this needs to be more of a consideration when we're driving. You need to be aware of people on the side of the road. But it was good advice. David, if you got a flat tower, would you get out of the car and try to change it? You seem like the kind of guy who definitely would do that. Uh, Yes, I for sure would. I would try, though, to not be on the freeway. I would try to get to Ah, an exit ramp or somewhere where I can be more than just like a car's width away from traffic. But, yes, I wouldn't. Uh, I would just change my own and I would be on my way. Absolutely. I know you would. And even, you know, I have young drivers in the house. I have a 16-year-old and a 17-year-old. And I tell them, God forbid, you know, mm-hmm. there's an accident. You get get to safety, pull over to the side of the road, and then obviously you have to call police, mm-hmm. but also exchange, exchange you know, Insurance talk to the other driver. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's not no longer good advice. Especially if it's on the highway, God forbid. You know, I think the advice to my kids would then be wait in your car and have them wait in their car also until officers arrive. Well, and I think, and you see signs that indicate this some places, that if you're in an accident and your car is still drivable, like Mm. just ride the shoulder and get off of the interstate. And then you don't, then you maybe don't have to call somebody. If you just get a little fender bender because you're in traffic, get off the interstate stop in a parking lot somewhere with the other driver who's hopefully cooperating and then exchange everything there instead of on the road. I think one thing that's going to be difficult about this new law is that, you know, when there is an emergency vehicle, you see that for half a mile ahead, you know, you're supposed to get over, you've Mm -hmm. got time Mm -hmm. to, okay, where's a good spot? I'm going to get over. I'm going to do this safely. If it's just a car that's way off in the ditch with its hazards on, you might not notice that until you're much, Mm -hmm. much closer to them. And then, you have much less time to make a plan of how to get over or slow down or react. So I, I applaud them for um, trying to make our roads safer. I just, I wonder how that will play out in, you know, in reality. I I agree. And I also, the, the, the enforcement was interesting. He said either, you know, the cop or the, the state patrol officer has to see you or somebody can report it. I hope there aren't too many false reports because I guess they would need to prove that. But keep in mind, friends, state troopers wrote more than 6,300 tickets for this offense in two years from 2020 to 2022. And by the way, 100 bucks. The ticket is 100 bucks. So uh, now you know. I learned a lot from that segment, and I'm really glad that he could join us.
Uh, when we get back, you know, Israel is always top of mind to me. I have a guest set up for 1135 who's currently in a bomb shelter because there were rockets raining down. But I'd like to address the humanitarian crisis that is going on in Israel and in Gaza. Um, so that's what we're hoping to talk about next on CCO. Jason from Oak Grove says, Jor, the biggest problem is folks texting while driving. People need to pay attention. I agree. And Jason, you know who I see this do this the most? Old people. Older people are doing this. The people that didn't grow up with rules about driving, maybe people that still have to think about their seatbelt. Um, because my kids know it would be the wrath of God if they were texting and driving. And also, young people are very familiar with Bluetooth and CarPlay and have lots of ways to do voice-activated things and not text. And um, I agree. I, I do think the texting and driving... Um, does need to stop. Do you agree? Do you disagree with me, David? I see you rolling your eyes. Um, oh no, I just uh, I think both young and old alike are distracted and texting while they're driving. I think young people, if they are going to text and drive, they're <laughs> they can hide it, like they're doing it on their lap or whatever. But you Kids? see, like an older person texting and driving, oh, yeah. and it's like with the held readers up way yeah. in front of them with the <laughs> readers and the other, and it's like very very obvious that they're doing it. So true. <laughs> So true. Oh, my God. That's so true. My gosh. Uh, You're very wrong on that. Well, all right. I only drive with my kids and their friends, and uh, they are afraid. Maybe maybe my friends have put the fear of God in their kids about texting and driving, but that is definitely not something I see, but I... So I'm in the car with older people. They're like, yeah, hold on. Let me let me text the reservation that we're going to be late for. I'm like, please don't do that. We'll be five minutes late. It's okay. It's okay. Uh, when we return, I am, as you know, consumed by what is going on in Israel and in Gaza. And it is when I get off on this show, it is what I watch. It is what I consume. My social feed has been uh, taken over by reports, events, eyewitness um, accounts, lots of fake news that hopefully I can discern. Uh, It has, it is tragic. It is. It is a full-on humanitarian crisis. And I agree with that. Uh, The main UN agency working in Gaza says it may be forced, this is according to CNN, to halt its operations later today due to a lack of fuel. Doctors are overwhelmed in hospitals on the brink of shutting down and warning a wave of new patients that are coming in injured in daily bombings that they might might not be able to help them. Eight out of 20 aid trucks um, have scheduled or have crossed into Gaza um, today. Eight out of 20 are scheduled. We don't know why the other 12 trucks didn't come in. And the ground offensive is still on pause. Israel's ground offensive is still on pause. I don't know why. I imagine it is to let more Gazans evacuate uh, and to hopefully maybe get the hostages back in a more diplomatic way. But this is a horrific situation that is ongoing. And I have, well... I know you guys hear me talk about my support of Israel. I am a Zionist through and through, which 
means that I support Israel's right to exist in the world. I support a Jewish homeland. I support Israel's right to exist on, on that land. Uh, that's what Zionism means, by the way. Um, I do have a lot of empathy for innocent people whose lives are being lost because either their government won't take care of them and through retaliation um, that Israel is sending its way in the hopes of trying to obliterate Hamas, which is the Israeli government's goal. I am hoping to talk with uh, Reserve Major IDF uh, General Elliot Chadoff. Uh, Elliot and I were texting. He's been on the show before. He's a political and military analyst. He is currently in Israel. He um, is hopefully going to answer some of our questions, uh, what he can answer. He and I have been texting all morning, and he said, Jordana, I, I should be available, but a few minutes after I confirmed him, he said, uh, we are being rocketed, and I have to go to the safe house, and there's no service in the safe house. He just texted me. He said, I will be available in a few minutes. I'll only have 10 to 15 minutes. So let's take a break. Elliot Chadoff, Major General, Reserve Major General in the IDF, joining us next. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. I know we only have a few minutes because my next guest has been in and out of bomb shelters all morning. Reserve Major IDF General Elliot Chadoff is now a political and military analyst. He is currently living in Israel and he is joining us now to update his current status. Uh, Elliot, thank you so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure. Good to be back. Now, tell us about your current status. Where are you and what's been happening this morning? Um, well, I'm, I've been called up to the reserves. I'm, I'm serving in the south. Uh, I'm a few miles from the Gaza border. Um, today, in particular, they chose our area for, for rockets. We got a very nice display uh, of the Iron Dome this morning. And we've had a few alerts on and off. But honestly, uh, we're, we're well enough protected from it. It just kind of disrupts the day for us. I understand. And, and thank God you are safe. And we're glad at least you have Iron Dome uh, to, and, and, to protect and, and with And we're the military. We're, our, our, this is our job. Yes, correct. So you're not a civilian today. You have been called no. up and you are currently serving. Yes, I was called um, up a few days ago and I'm, I'm in uniform and, as I said, in, in the military in the South. Okay. What can you tell us about... That, that that you can legally tell us. I understand. Um, you know, there's lots <laughs> yeah, of, of secrets. Limited. For, absolutely limited. But what are they telling you about a ground invasion? Or and how do you spend your day? Do you are just waiting for orders, or no, do, are you running I'm, drills? Okay, so so the, the 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 operational forces are are running drills. They're preparing. There, there's a huge. This is no secret. We we called up. Um, over 400,000 reservists in the first week since the massacre. Uh, some of them are up north in case Hezbollah gets out of hand. And the majority are down here in the south, geared up and waiting for orders to go in, which will happen when the political echelon decides they want to do it. When they tell uh, you I you're spent... geared up, 
I'm sorry. Go ahead, yeah. sir. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, I, I spend my day, I'm, I'm a staff officer. I'm, I'm a little old to be running around with the, with, with the troops at this stage. Um, mm-hmm. But I spend my day doing analysis, preparing preparing plans, approving plans, um, and just taking in whatever whatever input information. There's a constant flow of information coming in. Things need to be revised, both in terms of what, what we're learning on the, about what's going on on the other side. And it's, as more and more forces come in, um, just, again, dealing with the, this massive movement on our side of, uh, of, of troops and force, uh, I personally don't deal with logistics, but of course, mm-hmm. you can just imagine the logistics involved as well as is, is mammoth. I can't imagine. Uh, when they tell you that it is time to go in, what is the goal mm-hmm. of the ground incursion? The goal, as stated by the government and repeated by the military, is to eliminate Hamas. And here, let me say, there's been a lot of talk uh, that it can't be done. Hamas is an idea. That's simply not true. Hamas is an organization. Its ideology is is radical Islam, and that can't be eradicated. Uh, Just as a, a perfectly good analogy, in May 1945, the Allies destroyed Nazi Germany. They didn't eradicate Nazism. It's still around. Uh, and and so, making a comeback in some places, so we're so not how can this be successful? Okay. So okay, so you, but you you can you can destroy an organization. In other words, the the ideology behind it will remain, and then we all have to be vigilant, and not just on this side of the ocean, uh, to make sure that it, it doesn't gain strength uh, any more as much as we can prevent it. But Hamas as an organization needs to be destroyed. I think that everyone around the world would agree with that because Hamas is a terror organization. The idea well, of how unfortunately not is... everybody does. Oh, okay, that's fair. That, that's I've been seeing it on college campuses, and I have been seeing yep. people supporting Hamas. So I understand what you're saying, and you're right. I absolutely stand corrected that there are pro-Hamas uh, organizations that are rallying all over our country. So I yes, right, I, and, I and who you. consider people who you know murder, rape, and behead babies to be freedom fighters. Mm-hmm. Which is which is awful. Uh, there has been a lot of talk about a ceasefire and also the compounding deaths that are happening for civilians in Gaza. I know. I know you're also a political analysis. It has gotten very challenging for people who support Israel to be able to defend the civilian deaths in Gaza. Can you? Share with us what you are learning about that or yes. what kind of humanitarian aid is available for those poor people. Okay. So, first of all, um, there, in any war, there are civilian deaths. And as a matter of fact, I, I just had a, an aside conversation yesterday with one of the officers here who's responsible for the, the targeting in Gaza. And he said, look, and, and it was, it was, I was interviewing him. We, were, I, we served together. He said, we don't, we don't target civilians. We, we go after military targets. There are civilians there. We are as careful as we can be, but our mission is to take out the military target. And I, I, by the way, that's international law. That's the Geneva Convention. It's military ethics around the world. And I say around the world, I mean among, among countries that actually have ethics. I don't count the Russians in, in, in that mix, um, and certainly not terrorist organizations. So that's number one. Number two, the numbers that are being reported in Gaza, I say this hesitantly because we don't have a a very, very clear picture, uh, 
but they're they're exaggerated, just like they were exaggerated over the hospital incident last week, where they came out with. Their initial number was 500, and they raised it to over 700, and American intelligence says it's about 150. And even nobody knows for sure, but, but it gives you an idea of how, how wildly inaccurate their claims are, and for good reason. They want to make it sound like we're murdering everybody there. And let's keep in mind of the total, whatever the total number is, uh, many of them are terrorists. In other words, they're people who are trying to kill. And they get mixed up into into that whole grand number. So I'd be very, very careful about, A, quoting the numbers and and immediately turning those numbers into civilians. Yes. As far as the population mm-hmm. here, here we've got a, a much bigger problem uh, that's very complex. Hamas is holding over 200 hostages, everything from infants to elderly. Um, and it raises an interesting question, and and. and, and Actually, let me go back a step. We are not cutting off supplies to Gaza. We stopped providing them with the supplies. And there's an absurdity here. They just came in and murdered some 1,400-plus people. The real number is going to be higher in the end, by the way. But they just murdered some 1,400-plus people in Israel. Uh, and with all the atrocities that, that everybody's seen over the past couple of weeks, we were providing them electricity and water. There is no reasonable, ethical reason that I should be providing them with electricity and water, or anything else for that matter. They need the fuel, the gasoline, and this is why they're so desperate and why they're making such a big deal about it, in order to run the massive underground tunnel network that they've dug under Gaza. Their estimates that their, their tunnel network is some 500 kilometers in total. We're talking about something in the order of 300 miles of underground tunnels that require electricity in order to run their ventilation systems. Otherwise, they can't stay down there. In other words, they want us in the guise of humanitarian aid to provide them with the wherewithal to, to fight a war against us. doesn't seem particularly reasonable to me. They've been stealing aid from the United Nations. They've been stealing aid from whatever's been, been sent in there. And I, I feel for, for the people of Gaza uh, who are or caught up in it, but we're in a war, and quite frankly, we're in a war with a leadership that they voted into office in 2006. I think people don't understand the electricity and fuel, and it's my understanding, and uh, Major, please correct me if I'm wrong, I'm speaking with uh, Major General Elliot Chadoff, who's currently serving Major, in the Major, not Major, Major, I'm sorry, Major Elliot Chadoff, who's been called up yeah. in the reservists for the IDF. Thank you for the clarification. Um, the Palestinian Authority used to supply things like electricity and aid to Gaza, and then they decided to stop a few years back when they had a falling out with Hamas, whereas Israel right. stepped in then and continued supplying that aid. Is that correct? Yes. Not only is that correct, let, let me give you... A, 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 a sort of concentrated picture that very well describes the absurdity of the situation. We have a large electric power plant just north of Gaza that provides electricity, has been has provided electricity for years now, to Gaza. Hamas fires rockets at that electric plant. 
And on occasion, they've hit it a few times. They've never knocked it out. But on occasion, they've taken out the wire system that runs the electricity from the electric plant to Gaza. In other words, we're providing them electricity. They're firing rockets at the plant and the wires that provide the electricity to them. And incidentally, if we don't, if we don't repair it and, and restore electricity immediately, the U.N. condemns us for not providing them with electricity. What is your that, response to people that say... Israel is committing genocide against the Palestinians. Absurd. Absurd. We, we dropped more bombs in the past two weeks than America dropped in a year, in its heavily, most heavily bombed year in Afghanistan. And if we wanted to commit genocide with that number of bombs, the death toll wouldn't be in the low single thousands. What about now? Do you think that Israel has any responsibility or what responsibility, excuse me, does Israel have to open up the Rafah crossing? How the Rafah crossing um, is Egypt. We have no responsibility at all. Okay, and I just want to make that clear for people that are listening. But, you know, people will say, oh, well, Israel is is blocking or they've bombed the roads. Can you share some light on that? We have on, on the contrary. We did two things that the Geneva Convention mandates under the circumstances of going into a populated area. One is that we advised heavily advised the population to flee the combat zone before it becomes a combat zone. And the second thing we did was mark and allow two major roads to allow them to evacuate. Now, there's fighting going going on, but those roads are not specifically targeted in order to allow them to evacuate to the south of Gaza. Uh, it's, it's not nice. It's war. But let's remember who started it. It's also my understanding the Israeli government is dropping leaflets, telling people to evacuate, yes. and also dropping leaflets offering rewards if the people of Gaza uh, give information about the terrorists of Hamas. Yes. Is that true? Yes. Yes, it is true. Do you have any idea if there has been any outcome of that? Is there? Are they getting tips? That's, are they getting information? That's not being publicized, and I think for good reason. I understand. Uh, Reserve Major IDF Elliot Chadoff is on with us now. I know your time is limited. You've been in and out of a yep. bomb shelter this morning. Um, I, I have been hearing all into a briefing in a couple of minutes. I have been hearing uh, the last question then, sir, and I appreciate the time okay. that the people of Israel have really come together, that everybody, it's okay. not just the three to four hundred thousand troops that are on no, the border, no. that it's all of the people that are sending money and, and meals and clothing donations and checking on the people who are sitting Shiva. Can you describe that a little yeah. bit for us? Well, first of all, Israel totally come together on this. Um, I, I have to say that a soldier can is anybody in uniform is virtually impossible for them to pay for any food anywhere in the country. Um, in addition to that, volunteer organizations today on, on our base, and, this, and I, I'm a rather large operational base, um, came in with hamburgers and, and, and fries, and they, they set up an enormous area for, for dinner, and they fed the base, basically. And if you know anything about army food, anything is better than army food. This was really good. Um, so there's that. There's, there's been a tremendous outpouring. Keep in mind also that 400,000 reservists is 400,000 families. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, we want to let you go. Not just, not just the people who called up, but their their parents, their their children, their spouses, their their siblings um, are all affected by it, as as my family mm-hmm. is. Mm-hmm. As as everybody is, every Jew in America, every Jew in Israel, I, I understand, and also the Arabs, the Arab citizens of Israel as well. Absolutely. Uh, reserve, Absolutely. yes, Reserve Major IDF Elliot Chadoff. Thank you so much for taking the time uh, to talk My to us, pleasure. and we will check back in with you again. I am praying for you and Very for good. all of Israel. Please stay safe. Thank you. Thank you. I'm also uh, praying for the people of Gaza that they will be released from this terrorist organization. They will be kept safe. Uh, They will get UN aid. I am praying for all of the people that are affected, except, of course, the terrorists uh, that uh, started this conflict. This is such a challenging thing to talk about. And uh, thank you for listening in on this conversation. Hey, Rob Bradford here. I have set out on a mission with my good friends at FanDuel to prove what I have known for some time. Baseball isn't boring. Now I have a daily podcast to prove it with some of the most notable people in the baseball world screaming baseball isn't boring from the mountaintops or at least agreeing to come on our show. Players, managers, GMs, and yes, even the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred. It has been a constant wave of baseball's most powerful voices. So join the revolution. Subscribe and soak in baseball isn't boring. Listen on your Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcast. You'll be glad you did.